Today on Explorations in Psychotherapy, we are welcoming Anat Bronstein. Anat is a psychotherapist with over 30 years of clinical experience with individuals, couples, families, and groups. She has lived and worked with IFS since the early days of the model and learned closely and directly from Dr. Richard Schwartz. She's a certified IFS therapist and supervisor and a senior international lead trainer for IFSI, leading level one, two, and three trainings. She is also the co-founder and co-director of the Israeli Institute for IFS that brought IFS to Israel and has trained hundreds of Israeli therapists in the model since 2008. Anat taught family and couples therapy at Tel Aviv University, presented multiple times at the IFS annual conference, and has led IFS trainings, seminars, and workshops all over the world. She's married, has four children and one grandchild, and lives in Israel. She feels that all aspects of her life has, have been greatly influenced and shaped by the loving and spacious perspective IFS offers, for which she is deeply grateful. Today, we will be speaking with her about the nature and healing of exiles in IFS therapy. Inat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Real pleasure. Thank you. Welcome back, Inat. It's your take three in our podcast. In our first talk in July 2020, we addressed the importance of the therapeutic relationship. And in our second talk, February 2022, we address the tyranny of change and other therapist burdens. Both great episodes. This time, unfortunately, we are in the middle of such an horrific tragedy as your people and our democracies are again under the most violent terror attack in the history of your country. Our thoughts and prayers are with the Israeli people and with the Palestine people all the innocent victims from both sides of this tragic conflict should be in our minds and hearts. How are you, Enat? How have you been? Thank you for acknowledging that this is an unusual time for our country and maybe for the world. So I've been like, I think, most of us here um, holding different tracks, different channels of existence. There is the functioning, getting up in the morning and, you know, doing what you need to do and what you have to do. And then there's the other realm of incredible grief and horror and sadness um, and feeling shattered in many different ways. And then there is the, obviously, the track that's trying to make sense and understand and analyze and listen to analysts and be connected to the news and just uh, trying to wrap my brains around it and really trying to find comfort, solace, um, direction, enlightenment um, with the model. This is a real uh, uh, challenging time and I'm really trying to find my way um, through this darkness uh, with the support of this model that has been a light and a guide for me for so many years. Thank you. Enat, 
We will be discussing more advanced ideas about exiles in our conversation today. But for those in our audience who are newer to IFS, would you start with a general definition of what an exile is from an IFS perspective? Yeah. So there's many ways that you can describe exiles, but exiles would be, um, I would say, almost like capsules of pain, um, a wound, if you will, uh, in our in our psyche. And this is where the pain that we have incurred in some event could be a single traumatic event that happened to us. It could be um, um, a series of events, a time in our lives where, you know, things were very difficult. And the, the pain is actually sort of, you know, kept in this capsule because our system really needs to be, um, to have the pain uh, kept aside. We can't really survive or thrive if we are constantly flooded with pain. So this mechanism of exiling is very important. So it's almost like the pain gets encapsulated and held in this little capsule or bubble um, so that it doesn't flood our consciousness and it's not present all the time so that we can function and we can do what we need to do. Um, so maybe that's a good way to you know describe it, just a capsule that's holding pain and what is in this capsule when you look at it, you know, an exile is comprised of obviously the memories. And again, the memories can be implicit, explicit, depending on our age, you know, verbal or nonverbal, um, somatic, not somatic. So we have the memories in, encoded there in different ways. We have the beliefs that we took on when that happened to us. Beliefs like, you know, I have no value, no one loves me, um, I am a despicable person, um, the world is a dangerous place, all kinds of beliefs that we took on at the time of the event. And the final thing that's in this capsule of, of an exile would be um, the energy. Because every experience, every emotional, psychological, and physical experience has its own unique energetic signature or frequency. You know, so so let's say loneliness has a different frequency than energetic frequency than fear, than shame, than um, horror. So these things have their own unique energetic um, frequencies, and that's also there. And these are the things that we try to release when we do the unburdening. So that's what's in an exile capsule. And usually, I think, as most of us know, they're usually young. These are usually young parts because given the way I, our world is, you know, most of us uh, have experienced all flavors of exiles by the age of six or seven. We've, we've tasted it, some of us in very big, intense ways and some in very just small samples of it, but we've all sampled it and, uh, and it's there. We have those little capsules already. various types of exiles that exist in the internal system and can you describe the types of exiles that we commonly encounter in our own systems and in those of our clients yeah so again when we talk about different kinds of exiles it's it's where i really want to highlight that we do we exile different things we can exile our systems can exile different things in you know in order to provide safety 
the system, you know, all of our protectors with their elaborate skills and techniques are all about pain prevention, because that's what safety is for us, not to experience pain. And in order to do this, one of the mechanisms the system uses is exiling that which is deemed unsafe. So we have the exiles that I would call the pain exiles, which is the ones that I've just described. So these are really will be all the exiles that are holding pain. And interestingly enough, even though we have endless ways of, of experiencing pain, the kinds of pain seem to be a certain finite list. You know, in the list of exiles that are holding pain, the pain exiles, we would have, you know, worthlessness, powerlessness, meaninglessness, horror, like real, like fear of death or being terribly, you know, harmed, loneliness, rejection and abandonment, shame and humiliation. Um, I think that's it. Maybe deep grief would also be there. So these are things that we absolutely don't want to feel because they cause us so much pain. And no matter who you are and no matter what is your history and how you were introduced to these pains, you, you know, the system doesn't want to feel that. So these are the pains, the wounds that are getting exiled in those capsules. But additionally, there is what we call almost like strategic exiling, where some protectors end up exiling maybe other protectors or certain energies, because they feel that it's unsafe to allow those to be freely expressed in the system. The easiest example would be anger. So if we have learned at a young age that whenever we expressed our anger, our angry part, you know, kind of came up, we were punished severely. We were retaliated against. We were harmed worse when we showed our anger than if we didn't. So our system, the other protectors, in order to keep us safe, will basically exile anger. You can never show anger. You can be sad. You can be scared. You can be hurt. You can be sick. You can be depressed. Um, but you cannot be angry. So anger gets to be exiled. And anger is is an energy of our system. And energy is, I mean, an exile. I'm sorry, an anger is a, a protector, but it gets exiled. Um, other people had to exile maybe their talents and skills. You know, I have the story of a client that, you know, when she was a young child, you know, she was she was a very good student. And her big brother, her older brother, actually really struggled in school. And it was a source of pain for him. So she would come home really happy and proud of a good grade that she got on a test or on a paper or report card. And that would cause her brother to be very upset, you know, very angry. Sometimes he would beat her up. You know, the mother would come and say, why do you do it? You see that he's sensitive. Why do you have to brag? You know, you're making him feel worse. And so she was really shamed for, you know, her success. And she learned that, you know, being successful and, and showing, kind of allowing your lights to shine is actually causing other people hurt and harms you. So she stopped. She really stopped, you know, uh, she was no longer connected with the parts of her that were, you know, ambitious, wanted to do good, wanted to, you know, succeed, because that brought, you know, a lot of pain to her. So we have exiled, you know, so we have these exiles, which are strategically exiled, you know, parts and energies. And there's also what we call the neo-exiles, which are parts of us that we've always lived with very comfortably. 
But at some point in life, usually because we are in a certain relationship, romantic relationship or other kind of important relationship, and in order to keep those relationships going, we have to exile some parts of ourselves, parts that we were fine with up until then. But due to the unique structure of this relationship, these parts are no longer welcome and they have to be exiled. And maybe later can give some examples of that. So I would say we have the pain exiles, the strategic exiles, and the neo-exiles. Thank you. That's so helpful. Thank you. And Einat, how do we get access to exiles? Exiles are not always showing up immediately in the first session and jump into our lap, right? What ways does IFS offers to therapists and practitioners to help clients access their exiles? Would you describe these ways for us? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's true. Exiles aren't necessarily quite there. And actually, you know, we have so many protectors that are trying to keep us so further away from our exiles that you're right, you know, reaching exiles is is not so easy necessarily. Um, nor, by the way, it should become... Um, an outcome to pursue, uh, you know, because we keep saying to IFS therapists, you, you don't come with an agenda. And even though we have an intention, because we know that healing exiles, you know, is is really how the system heals, you know, com- you know, in general and, and more self, you know, is present, but more self energy, but it, it's not like an agenda or an outcome that you want to like pursue, 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 because then you have more parts involved than self. But for us, the way we access exiles, I usually um, describe three ways that that happens. One way is through the protectors. So people do notice and know their protectors. The protector is if if you kind of envision, you know, the, the iceberg where the tip of the iceberg is above the water and then the rest of the iceberg is below water and not visible. So the what the, the part of the iceberg that's above water is the protectors. Because the protectors, especially the managers, they work all, all day long. They're always there, you know. So when someone says, oh, I'm a perfectionist or pleasing or critical, these are the protectors that we know and, you know, live with. So when we get to know and we start, you know, again, this IFS insight process or direct access, doesn't matter. But when we start connecting with a protector, manager, firefighter, doesn't matter. We have those questions that lead us to the exile that this protector is trying to uh, protect, protect from, protect, you know. So, you know, the the questions are, you know, when we ask uh, a protector, what are you afraid would happen if you didn't do what you're doing? And we get an answer and we say, okay, and then what? So if you ask a perfectionist part, you know, what are you afraid would happen if you didn't make me do everything perfect all the time? Well, then things will get messed up. You know, the kids won't go to school. There won't be clean laundry. You know, your work won't be your work won't be done. There'll be chaos everywhere. Okay, we said, and then what would happen? You know, if there'll be chaos everywhere and kids and at home and all that, then you know you'd feel it like you're a loser. You're a failure. You, you're not doing anything good. You know, you're you're not doing what you're supposed to do here. So already hinting, you know, loser, failure. You know, and I can say, and what would happen if I feel like you know failure or loser and say, well, you, you know, you, your life is meaningless. You're worthless. You know, what are you here for anyway? So here we have arrived to the um, exile of worthlessness or meaninglessness or powerlessness. 
So by asking the, uh, protectors, what are you afraid would happen if you didn't do it? You know, the answers get us to the exile. So that's one way to get to exiles. Another way of asking this question, because sometimes protectors don't like this question. They say, I, I'm not afraid of anything. You know, I'm doing this because that's the right thing to do. Some protectors can be quite sassy. Um, so one way, a nice way to ask it also is, you know, what is your good intention for me? How are you trying in your action in doing things perfectly or being very pleasing and caregiving or being very critical? How are you trying in your actions to be helpful, supportive and protective of me? It's really like talking, you know, inviting them to describe the, their good intention. And that also the answers to that also lead you to the pain they're trying to protect you from, which is actually the exile they're trying to protect. And we then respectfully ask for permission. Say, okay, so I understand that you're trying to protect me from feeling worthless, you know, which is why I do everything perfectly and I'm so important in every system that I participate, my family, my work. I understand that you're trying to protect me from feeling worthless. Would it be okay if I try to connect with this part of me that is holding the experience of worthlessness, the part that holds the worthlessness, and see if I can connect with that one and take care of it? And if we get permission from the protector, we go. We go to this exile. If we don't get permission because the part has all kinds of concerns and fears, we stay with the protector and address the fears and uh, try to um, reassure, try to gain trust until we get permission. It may take time, but eventually we get permission from the gatekeeper and then we go to the exile. That's one way, a very common way. Another way to get to exiles is actually through the body through somatic expressions. Exiles almost, you know, it's almost like you can say they're sending like little cues. Hey, I'm here. Hey, somebody come and rescue me through the body. So I can be talking to a client and maybe we are just starting the session and they're just starting to describe something that happened or maybe we're already with a protector. And all of a sudden I see the client starting to tear up or get choked up. And then I would pause and I would say, you know, let's just see what, what just happened. I can see the tears or getting choked up. Can you give it some space and just notice um, who is crying those tears? Where are they coming from? Whose tears are these right now? And clients pause and say, I don't know, just feeling this, just this trembling, you know, in my chest or in my gut. Um, and I'd say, just go with this trembling, just notice, you know, where's this trembling coming from? And they may say, I just see this little girl, you know, sitting in a corner and she's the one crying. And I would say, you know, just check and see, you know, can we, do we have permission? Is it okay for us to go to this little girl as she just showed up and see if it's okay for us to go there? So we're asking permission from whatever, you know, the protectors are around there. And if we get permission, we go there. Um, and if we don't get permission, um, then we just, I would usually invite my client to just send a message, even from afar, send a message to the little girl, you're not lost, you're not forgotten, I know you're there, and I will try to get to you when the time is right. And then we know she's there, we've found, you know, she's made herself known through the tears or the choked throat, um, or, you know, a client can take a deep sigh all of a sudden. I would say the same thing. Who inside of you was just sighing this sigh? Where did it come from? Client says, you know, client comes to session, said, I have this horrible headache. And I would say, let's just stay with the headache. You know, 
what do you hear from the headache? You know, is there a message there? Is there an image? Any other sensations? And the clients may say when they give space to it and really focus, they could say, you know, I just hear, you know, some like almost like a crying, you know, I can't do it anymore. Or this is too much. And I say, well, who's saying that? Let's connect. So the body sometimes gives us a very direct access to uh, to exiles that otherwise may take us much longer to get to. And the third way um, that we get to exiles is exiles actually are already flooding and present. You know, the client comes sobbing bitterly, saying, I haven't slept for two nights. I'm feeling horrible. I have this whatever you know, my partner just left me or I just lost, you know, somebody very close to me. I'm grieving. I am something really bad had happened and, you know, totally flooded with the pain. So the exile is here and we're just trying to unblend enough so that the client can be with this exile and start a healing process. So these are the three ways I find exiles to show up. Sometimes exiles also um, would be, again, in that in the last example, the last category of the exile is already there. There is this notion, of especially people with trauma, you know, something labeled an emotional flashback. So an emotional flashback, you know, flashbacks can be, you know, something triggered by a scent or a sound, a location, um, a, a physical sensation. But sometimes there is like, you know, something happened and we have this emotional flashback of pain of something you know so it's almost like this this flashback this exile sending a message from the depth whoa here i am and that also means that maybe we have kind of an invitation or an opening because the exile has already opened their door they're not flooding us but they're actually making themselves known and the pain is here the pain became more evident and more present and we can you know go with that beautiful thank you And how do we know for sure that we are in the presence of an exile and listening from him or her and not, for instance, from a young protector, for instance? Yeah, it's a great question because the fact that we have met a child inside of us does not necessarily mean it's a it's an exile. It could be a protector, um, a young protector or the young version of one of our protectors. So usually the question that helps us define, you know, or d- decide what, you know, who we're with is, again, the question we ask protectors. So, you know, what is your good intention for me? Or what are you afraid would happen if you didn't do what you're doing? And protectors will give us an answer. And an exile will just kind of be a bit puzzled by this question because they're not trying to do anything they they're they're just holding their experience and that question will kind of go nowhere with them so um usually that's the question that have that's kind of the litmus test of is it a protector or is it is it an exile it's it's not always as clearly defined because we can meet an internal an inner child and the child will be both because that child is encapsulating a certain maybe experience in life, all right? So that could be, you know, okay, so the parents got, you know, the parents were divorced and, you know, they asked me to choose, um, you know, which parent I want to go with. Again, real stories from clients. And um, 
And, you know, that client, you know, described that the parents, you know, he was like seven or something, like really. And, and the parents asked him, who does he want to live with? Which is a terrible way thing to do to a child. And he whispered in the ear of each of them. He didn't answer. You know, he, he went to one of them and it whispered in the mother's ear with you. And he went to the father and whispered in the father's ear with you. So, so in a way, he wanted to give them back. You know, he, he wanted, you know, so he wanted each of them to say, well, he wants to go with me. And then let them hash it out. He just wanted to give that decision back to them. Um, but they really mocked him and became very angry at him. So that child that the client met was a child that was both uh, a protector, trying to, again, you know, kind of push the responsibility away from him, avoid making decisions. And that, that's a protector that he knows, just trying to not make decisions because making decisions is very painful and very that's that's a pain. So there's a protector that's trying to avoid making decisions. Um, along with the pain of that event, which is, you know, feeling shamed, feeling torn, uh, unloved, abandoned by whomever the parent that didn't take him. Um, so in that one child, we had both a protector and an exile. So we just like trying to understand, you know, unpack the experience of the child and then name that, you know, there's a part in this child that was trying to protect him and avoid the decision that was very difficult. And there are parts in this child that are holding the pain of the abandonment, of the loss, of the shame. So, you know, it, it can be in one image, one internal character, both. Beautiful. Thank you. So the, the healing of exiles is an essential aspect of IFS therapy, as not only is it important to give these wounded, traumatized, and isolated parts opportunities for healing and connection for their own sake, but we also see that as long as these parts are still vulnerable, it's extremely difficult, often impossible for protectors to give up their extreme roles. So we'd love to discuss some considerations that are essential to be aware of in the healing process with exiles. And the first of these is the importance of the messages that we give to exiles as we approach them in the system, because they're often carrying very powerful emotions and energies that protectors can find overwhelming. But we don't want to do anything that suggests to them that they're not welcome or that they need to be different or milder in order to be welcomed, in order to be helped. So we're wondering if you can speak to that a bit. Yeah. So if we're going to start talking about really, you know, um, the healing process and what, what we do or we don't want to do in the healing process, I want to maybe preface it by saying that um, the the way the therapist, you know, shows up um, to, to connect with exiles is really important. And most of us in Western culture and Western society um, have been socialized to be very much afraid of pain. Uh, pain is is a bad thing. Pain is not allowed. We do so much to just get away from pain. And as therapists, you know, I think I addressed it in the the other podcast of you know tyranny of change. As therapists, we really feel that our job, our mission statement, our mandate mandate is to take the pain away, or to make sure that our clients do not suffer or diminish their suffering and. And and really, what we know about doing that is is find ways to bypass the pain, to get away from the pain. IFS, in a way, says no. You go to the pain. You go and connect and sit so closely with the pain 
And I think for many IFS therapists, this is very difficult. It's it's just downright scary. And um, it, it's something that feels counterintuitive. You know, no, no, I don't want to do that. And so many IFS therapists will spend quite a bit of time working with protector, getting to know protectors, you know, trusting, you know, getting trust relationship with the protector and all that, but still kind of avoiding going to the exiles. So self-presence and self-energy are critical when we want to, you know, connect with exiles. First of all, for the therapist, as because we are holding, we are kind of creating the container within which the client can then go and do that, which is difficult, scary, painful. And um, so it's so important for us as therapists to do our work so we don't, you know, so we're not afraid of that, that we so that we really, really believe the process that IFS offers, you know, because if you are to perform some kind of a of elaborate you know process and you don't trust your tools and you don't trust the the, the procedure then you're even more kind of holding back from doing it but if you really really trust the ifs process of resolving trauma and working with exiles and if you really really um feel connected and safe inside of you you can lead it in the best way and again this is a call for all ifs therapists to connect with their exiles and do this process. When you experience it personally, you know that it works and you know why it works and you understand it so you can offer it to others. The second thing is really to be sensitive to the presence of self-energy uh, in the client, to notice because connecting, getting close to exiles can be very triggering for protectors. So our part detector needs to be quite you know, uh, astute to notice when the client is, you know, kind of maybe has been, is blended with a part because we got close to the exile or because we started to hear the story of the exile. And it's so triggering. It's so difficult that, you know, so again, our our presence of self and the client's presence of self are very important when we come to be with an exile so that we are not feeling fear because fear is a part and we are not feeling um, uh, overwhelmed or lost or confused or you know, affected, you know, by the story or what unfolds in any way. So when you were asking about the kind of the do's and don'ts, you know, in, in this process, so people are often worried about being, um, about flooding, you know, that the exile will flood and what do we do then? Um, many of us have been taught that when you start working with the exile, you ask them not to flood. You just ask the exile not to flood. And I think for years it made perfect sense because we say, you know, listen, you know, if you flood, then we can't be with you because if you flood the client, there's no self. That's who's going to be with you. You're alone again. So it made sense. But over time, in my experience, I became uh, increasingly uncomfortable asking exiles to not flood. It's almost like it felt like here we are finally connecting with this part that has been isolated and alone and abandoned. and and we're coming with all these conditions. Okay, well, you know, don't be flooding, don't be too much, scale yourself down, taper down, say things slowly, say things, you know. So it was kind of like, well, you know, it's a young part. It's already been holding so much. And here we are coming with all these conditions and terms and yes, but. And, and so I realized that I'm not comfortable doing that. And that we're coming to the exile sort of like with this open space of show up the way you need to show up. And sometimes it will be, you know, just a little girl telling you a story. 
and very manageable. And sometimes it can be a pretty intense experience. So this brings us to, okay, so what happens if the clients really start, you know, like, you know, crying or trembling or freezing or something that, you know, we may label, oh my God, the client is now flooded. So first of all, the, the piece here is that the client is not flooded. You know, self does not get flooded. Parts get flooded. So certain protectors that always try to keep that exile at bay and like things to be neatly wrapped and under control, those protectors are looking now with horror at this exile showing their pain, showing their tears, showing, you know, their their trauma somatically or otherwise. So those protectors that were in charge of everything, you know, being, you know, okay, these protectors are overwhelmed and they are like, they're shocked and they're flooded. They're like, oh my gosh, you know, the, the worst has happened. You know, it came out of its cell, its capsule, and now it's all over the place. Self does not get flooded. Self is like this spacious, spacious container of compassion, of courage, of, of course. Self can contain any part of the system. It's like this optimal parent. No child is too much for me. The child that's throwing a horrible tantrum might be too much for the older siblings that were watching this child up until now and kept the child behaving. And now the child's throwing this horrific tantrum and the older siblings are like, whoa, 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 we have no idea what to do. But for the optimal parent, this is this is okay. They get it. They understand why the child's doing it. It's okay. You know, you have so much pain. It's okay to, to scream your pain, to cry your pain, to to pound on the floor your pain. So I, I, you know, when that happens to a client, I don't think, oh my gosh, you know, it's flooding. We're going into the understanding that the exile is now embodying the client. We are getting an embodiment of the exile experience. And this is when Dick really talks about no grounding. You know, other models offer grounding when that happens because we want this to stop. Like, this is bad. This is painful. This is no good. So they would tell the client, you know, hey, you know, open your eyes. Here's a glass of water. Just catch your breath. We don't need to go there. Don't worry about it. We're not going to do it. Here, look at me. We're good. We're here. It's not happening. And really sort of like stop the process and sort of bring the client back. But if you do that, you are giving several really problematic messages to the system. First of all, you're telling the exile that they are too much and they cannot come out the way they are. They are too much. Go back. It's it's all these clients that have wounds from being children in pain and the parents say, go to your room and settle down. You're making too much commotion, too much of a, just go to your room and settle down. It's like, you know, so you're expected by yourself with no help, with no support to go settle down, you know, be, deal with your pain by yourself. So, and, you know, I think when we just started talking about exiles, I forgot to say that in addition to the original wound that they have, exiles, when we finally come to them, are also holding the pain of the loneliness, the abandonment that, you know, that they have experienced for years as they were thrown into these capsules and no one came. So for us, we finally, here we are. And then we again, sending them to the room because they misbehaved. They were not good. They didn't do it the right way. You know, it's like, so one message when we do this grounding is you've been bad. You're too much. Go to your room and settle down. We don't want to give the exile this message. Another message is, you know, calling back protectors. Hey, you all come back, you know, you left, look what happened when you left your post, 
you all have to come back now and hold even tighter to those, you know, roles that you were holding. Don't, you know, get your eyes off of this, you know, cell or that, you know, exile is going to come out again. So it's it's becoming, it's calling the protectors to become more entrenched, kicking, you know, the exile further into the depth. It's not a good thing. We don't want to do that. It's not empowering. It's very disempowering. If we allow the client to embody the exile, and what I do is I really just sort of, I narrate the experience. I don't leave my client with that because I get that this is difficult and painful and trauma is about being alone. You don't want him alone. But, you know, I have this client that, you know, I really learned this with her. And she would she would go into the trauma and she would become frozen. She will tell me, you know, I, that's it. You know, I can see on her face, her eyes, you know, start glaze over. She would say, I can't feel my arms. I can't feel my legs. I'm frozen. And I would say, okay, so now that this part, this girl is here with us, she needs us to know her experience, to really understand her experience. It's not enough for her to just talk about it. She needs us to fully see it. Are you okay allowing her to use your body now to show you fully, to show us what had happened to her, what it was like for her? And let her know, though, that it is not happening now. She's safe. We are here with her. It's not happening now. But she can show us through your body what it was like for her. And I just keep talking through it. It's okay for her to show us, but she's safe. You are safe. It's not happening, but it's okay for us to see and to fully, fully get what it was like for her. And it's like a wave, you know, it kind of goes up and then it starts coming down. And then she's starting to breathe deeply again and she's not numb anymore. And she can kind of really look at me and see me and it subsides like a wave. What those experiences do, and then we can continue to be with the exile and she can share more things and we can do the healing steps. But these things really are so empowering for my client because it gives the exile a sense that she's not too much. And we were really with her. We were really able to be with her. And protectors were not called, you know, were not activated to come back and resume their posts. And she feels so empowered that she spent this intense, intense time with her exile. And she was there for her and she didn't run away. And uh, there's always such, you know, uh, wonderful descriptions of her experience after that, what follows those uh, times. So the, the suggestions here are just to summarize it is not to ask um, exiles not to flood because I feel it's, you know, very limiting uh, and not to ground and not to get scared. You know, when we look at flooding, it's protectors who feel flooded. Self does not get flooded. We can be present and we can allow an embodiment safely while we're with the client there, um, connecting them to here and now through our voice, our narration of it, and allow that, you know, to happen without fear. I absolutely love this approach that you're talking about. I know it's been a real game changer for me in my practice. And one of the things I love about what you're saying is you're actually taking care of everyone this way, the exiled and the protectors, because you're using this kind of form of implicit direct access to speak into the system and let the protectors, you're sort of addressing their fears. You know, I'm here with you. Nothing bad is happening. She's just using She's using your body to show you what it was like for her. And it's reframing this experience for them. 
You know, that's different from, oh, we're being overwhelmed. Oh, something bad's happening. Oh, we're in danger. She's using your body to just let you really get it, you know? Exactly. So it, and it allows the exile to be there in the way they need to be. And then, like you said, it's super empowering for the client. And it also shows protectors, lots of protectors who were concerned that, oh, wait, there's a way to safely do this. We can safely ride that wave that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So it makes future endeavors more possible. Yes. Thank you. It helps protectors trust self. They see self hold this, which for them is the scariest, most undesirable, you know, event. And they see self hold it. And, you know, the earth doesn't collapse. And yeah, we come out on the other side of it. And hey, you know, wow. So it really helps protectors trust self when we're able to do that. And another phenomenon we encounter in the internal world are nonverbal and preverbal exiles. Can you speak a little about these types of parts and about any differences in the approach to healing them versus working with exiles who are verbal? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm noticing in myself, you know, every time we talk about preverbal exiles, I just get this wave of sadness that human pain can start at such an early stage. And we know now that, you know, some people have exiles from pre-birth, you know, from being in utero, utero and things have already been difficult. So, um, yeah, so pre-verbal exiles will be exiles that have been formed in very early ages for us, very early stages when we didn't have words. The meaning of not having words is not just that we cannot speak about it because we don't have words. It wasn't encoded into our memory, into our system in words, but more so in somatic experiences, through the senses, through the body, um, maybe images, but not um, nothing that we can describe in words. Um, so our work with preverbal Exiles really is much more somatically uh, and experientially focused. And we can get to them through physical experiences, through pain, through symptoms, through areas in the bodies that show a certain sensitivity. And um, it's extremely precious. Uh, I know it from my own personal experience. And I had this very, very wonderful um, session during my level one up 10 years ago, um, with Susan McConnell. And um, it was um, working through tightness in my jaw, working kind of inwards and through the tightness in my jaw and around my mouth, you know, uh, I actually connected with a nursing baby and and some experiences during those this stage. So a nursing baby, I was, you know, several months old. Um, so clearly had no words and none of these experiences were encoded with words, but um, was able to connect with this baby and uh, kind of hear her story. And it was, again, not hearing words, but have the sensation, the emotional uh, experience, the energetic experience uh, of that baby um, that then I, as the adult, was able to kind of give words to just through connecting to the emotion and the energy of this uh, nursing baby. And that was kind of through the body. So knowing how to work through the body, through um, somatic expressions, through symptoms is actually really important. 
for preverbal um, preverbal exiles, and we all have them. Um, I'm, I'm that's my bias that we all have them. Uh, we may or may not discover them, and maybe they're not like terribly intense. Uh, but I think that even in very early stages, we experience different kinds of pain. Uh, and we're very fresh beings. So everything makes a big impact. You know, even a baby that just cries and no one heard, so no one came, even in the most loving environment. But sometimes parents, they didn't hear, they slept, they were exhausted, there was something else going on. And for a baby to cry for a long time and no one's coming, that's already like very, very frightening. And there probably is an exile of powerlessness, of worthlessness, of fear of death, it's there. Maybe not big or intense, but it's probably there. Thank you. One key phase of the healing process with exiles is the redo or the corrective experience. So can you describe this process and any special considerations we should keep in mind when we're facilitating the redo between yeah. the client's self and an exile? So. The redo is is really one of the most wonderful things in in the IFS healing process for exiles because it really allows us to experience that painful uh, time in a different way. You know, I, I recall some things that we do intuitively, like something happens, something unpleasant happens, and you know, it would happen to me, but other other people do it as well. And I go afterwards and I say, oh. I should have said that, and I should have done that, and I should have left right away, and I should have told them, you know, what I felt in leave and a half, and I next time I'm going to do this. And so in my mind, I'm going through, you know, I should have, I could have, but I'm almost like seeing it in my mind's eyes, how I did it differently. I told the person off, and I was very clear, and I was very assertive, and I didn't stay, and I didn't do this, and I did this differently. And it's almost like it's a bit corrective just by, you know, imagining myself doing it differently. So the redo is a much deeper, and, and it's done when we're a bit in, a, in an altered state, when we are deep inside with our exiles, the redo is really offering that. And we know that there is, you know, impact on the neuroplasticity of the, of the brain when we are really experiencing that traumatic event differently, altered in ways that are empowering for us, in ways that actually have corrected what took place, what was painful. So if if during the traumatic event we were frozen, then the corrective experience will not be. We will be active. We will be doing things. If, you know, our experience was, you know, whatever, fight, flight, freeze, and all the other ones, you know, if we, we, we escaped, well, this time we won't escape. We'll be able to stay and fight or do something like this. So the redo is, first of all, an, an, an attempt to offer a corrective experience to that which was very, very traumatic and painful. And it's corrective by way of empowering the, the, the entity, the part that experienced, the child that experienced the traumatic event, empowering them and making sure that they're not alone. Because again, the isolation, the loneliness of the experience the fact that there was no one there to save you, to, to take care of you, to do this, whatever was needed. So first of all, they're not alone anymore because, you know, the self of the client is with this part. And they're not powerless. There are things that they can do, that they can do, that the self that's now with them and is this benevolent adult presence can do for them in the situation. 
So the redo is this corrective experience and an opportunity to go through the same situation, um, but to, um, to do it differently, to experience it differently. And so people often ask, well, how different can the redo be? You know, so can we say that it didn't happen at all? Like that bad thing just didn't happen. You woke up in the morning and there was no accident and there was no, nothing happened. Can the redo include um, very violent uh, behaviors? I mean, I had a client and um, with the, his, you know, the sexual, the trauma was sexual abuse. And when we asked for the redo, what the little girl wanted, she wanted to beat up the perpetrator. And it was like, okay. And she started to beat up the perpetrator. And she said, I'm going to beat him up to death. You know, he needs to die. So did ask Dick about this, you know, many years ago. You know, is it okay to do a redo that actually someone dies, you know, in the redo? And the ultimate sense was yes. Yes, because again, uh, it's it's providing this is the corrective experience you know many times you know perpetrators and abusers in a way it feels like they killed the child with whatever they did they killed so the fact that the child has parts that want to kill back you know in the same way you know like i'm killing you i'm not really killing you but i'm killing you in in my redo um just to set the record straight or just to create safety you know for me to be safe you need to die you need to not be here um, that is corrective, that is empowering, that you can really harm or, you know, do away with someone who's been, you know, a horrific perpetrator for you. The only thing to pay attention to is when a client says, you know, what the little girl is asking is to to kill that perpetrator, to beat him up to death, is to just pause here for, and just invite the client to check if this is really the request that's coming from the exile, from the child, or maybe there's another part that came in angry, rageful, you know, wanting a vengeance, you know, to avenge, you know, to revenge, to punish. That could be a part that just came in and is inserting their desire. Um, but if the client checks and they seem quite unblended and with a lot of self-presence and they say, no, that, that little girl, she just, she really wants the experience of killing him. Then we allow that. That's, that's the redo. The thing about the redo is it needs to feel right for the part that we're with, the exile, and for the client. And I want to give an example that's really a wonderful example because it, this is a point that many times um, other parts show up, maybe self-like parts. So the client doesn't really feel, it's seamless. It doesn't feel like there's parts that got you know involved here, but, but there are parts and it doesn't work. I had this beautiful experience in, in a demo a few years ago and and I hope it's okay to share that. And if the person hears that, then I hope that she gives me her permission. Um, that the um, the trauma was a big explosion that took place, and um, she was there with her, you know, younger brother, mother. Mother grabbed her very, you know, tightly, ran down the stairs, you know, kind of hurt her rib in that because it was so panicky, and just the explosion was horrible. So here we were trying to do the redo for the little girl about the explosion. And so first she said, well, the explosion just didn't happen. We're just going to go through this day and there was no explosion. That's a possible redo. And I said, okay, so just check. Just take a moment and have the little girl check and you check and see if that feels right. And she checked and she said, no, 
it doesn't feel right. And then she thought for a little bit more and she said, okay, there is an explosion, but it's an explosion of flowers. Just gazillion flowers have just exploded out of this thing and the, the space is full of flowers. So it's an explosion of flowers. So beautiful, so lovely. I said, okay, so check that. Check if that's that sounds right. And she checked and she said, no, it still doesn't feel right. So if we have these beautiful suggestions, but they don't feel right, then it's probably not self. It's parts, wonderful parts. They want to help. They want to offer beautiful, creative, imagined, you know, imaginative things. But it's just not the right thing. It won't offer the healing if it's not the right thing. And then I said, I said, you know, maybe these suggestions, which are beautiful, come from a part that's just trying to do the right thing by this little girl and see if that part or parts be willing to kind of step aside and just allow you to be with her. Don't worry about it, you know. Don't work hard at it. It's not an assignment. Be with her, connect with her, allow it to come to you. You will find what what is the right thing to do. And she did. And then she said, okay, we are ready. It is going to be an explosion. And it's not going to be an explosion of flowers. But we are ready for it. We are tucked. We went deep inside together. And we are ready. So we're inside. And I'm with her. And here's the explosion. And it's not as shattering because we are prepared for it. And we are also feeling safe because we're tucked inside. And we are going downstairs with the brother and the mother. And it's not so frantic because we were ready. And we can also take care of the younger brother. And it's just a different experience. So it's almost, a, it seems like a small redo, but it was so profound and so different. And it was the right one. So the redos can be real big and imaginative, and they can be very small and, and minor. But the main important thing is to allow the client to really sense, does that feel right? Check with the little one. Check with you. Just, does that feel right? And if the redo feels right, then, then we go ahead and we do it. Um, and maybe just to say about redos, that redos also can include other people. So I've been to redos where the client have asked the therapist to join the scene. So, you know, the client self was taking care of something while, you know, the therapist was dealing with another aspect of that scene, you know. So, and they can have the therapist be there or bring other people into the scene. You know, people say, you know, my husband is here too, and he's taking care of that while I'm taking the little girl away. Or So they can have other people in, in the redos, and it doesn't have to be people. It can be angels, it can be guides, it can be ancestors. You know, the the world of Ridu is a completely open field of, of all imaginative, creative, multi-realm, multi-dimensional possibilities. Again, as I said, it can be epic in size and it can be very minor, just whatever feels really right for the person. That beautiful example with the demo is just such a wonderful illustration of how we as therapists or practitioners don't have to know and sometimes can't know what needs to happen. You really were trusting and respecting the wisdom of the system and then following that and the healing resulted from that. Some people will also ask with the redo if it's okay if the exile says, well, I don't want to leave my younger siblings or my parents here and sometimes, you know, and is there a difference between if they're asking about younger vulnerable people versus if they're asking about yeah. parents yeah. Or... so 
yeah, so this, again, the scope of the redo, you know, can it include other people? You know, the redo, by the way, is we teach it as one of the steps in the healing protocol. But I think the redo is the whole experience as well as a step. The minute that we show up with self-presence with our exile, it's already a redo. The exile, the child is now in the presence of a loving, compassionate, patient, you know, tender, caring entity. They were never with this entity before, you know, not internally, not externally. This is a whole new thing. Already it's a redo, that there is this adult presence that is so benevolent, that is so connected to me, that is really holding this kind of space for me. So even from the very beginning, it's already a, a different corrective experience. It's already a redo. The retrieval is also an experience of a redo. Retrieval is when we invite, you know, when we take the, uh, with their permission, of course, their consent, we take the child away from the traumatic scene into a total different place. And it, it could be a different place and it could be a different time. Um, so that is also a redo. First of all, they're not stuck there. You know, again, one of the elements of, of, uh, of trauma is that it's inevitable and you're trapped there and you cannot go cannot leave. And that's what happens to children. They're trapped in their life, in their homes. They cannot leave. Where are they going to go? How are they going to go? So the fact that they have the freedom and they can choose and you invite them and say, would you like to go somewhere else and leave this place? And they can say yes, and they can leave. That's a huge redo already. That's again, a corrective experience uh, for the stuck, you know, trapped uh, experience they've had in the trauma time. So many times they actually want to take people with them out of there. They definitely want to take younger siblings because they know that if the sibling stays, they're going to be harmed or they're already being harmed. And they just and and they say, you know, I, I can't really be OK and feel good if my sister is staying there and is going through this or my pet um, when they you know, but when they want to take other other people with them, I just again, I just pause and I ask the client to check, you know, does this really come from the little girl? Does she want to take her grandma or her mom or you know, her sibling, um, or is there a part that came in and it is a caregiving part, a parentified child part that is trying to do the responsible thing, be the responsible sibling or the parentified child that's always taking care of everyone in here, even in their redo and healing, they're still trying to take care of everyone. So just trying to check if there are parts of the client or parts, parts of the exile that really is still trying to take care. And this is where, um, so if it's a, a part, a responsible part of the client, like a protector that came and said, oh, you know, we always take care of everyone. We still need to take care of everyone. We'll invite that part to unblend and just allow us to be with the child and see what is right for the child. And then when we check with the child, you know, again, she may also want to take, she may want to take the sibling or the parents out of the scene. And again, just to invite the child to check, you know, what is she afraid would happen, you know, if she didn't take them. Again, in case she has a protector inside of her that's still working hard. Um, and if she says, you know, they'll be mad at me or they won't love me or, you know, then you know it's a protector. And or if she says, um, uh, if she says that um, they're going to be harmed, it's going to be bad for them. Again, but a child cannot save them. You know, it's a, that's, again, the belief that she's carrying that are so burdensome. You say, well, we can take care of them, too. 
you know, we can come back and take care of them and we can. For now, what what does she need? And, you know, if she can then go by herself, that's fine. And if she still says, no, I really want to take them, we'll take them. We'll take them. We just want to release her from all these burdens of I'm responsible. I need to take care. It's hard to do the healing if if that little child is still holding all the burdens of I'm responsible for my siblings. I'm responsible for my parents and my healing process. You know, I have to carry them along. So trying to kind of differentiate and say, you know, we can help them in other ways. We can come back and take care of them, too, and empower them. But for you, for now, you know, for for what you need to do. Um, and then, you know, they don't have to take care, take the others, but sometimes they will take the others. And it will be part of their healing and part of their unburdening. They're all going to be included in there. Inat, let's talk a bit more about retrieval when an exile is asked if it wants to leave a place in the past and come to a safe place in the present. It can happen before or at the end of witnessing, usually comes after the do-over and redo. Why is this retrieval step so important? And also, when is it really important, this invitation for retrieval to be done? Yeah. So retrieval can happen at any point in the process and may not happen, may not be necessary at all. Um, so let's say we connect with an exile. You know, it happened to me. I, you know, kind of we got permission. We got to connect with the exile. And, you know, we always start asking our client, you know, so what do you see? You know, what does this part look like? Where is this part? What is it doing? And this client said, She's locked up in the closet hiding because her father is beating up her brothers and she is mortified that he's going to find her and then she's going to get a terrible beating as well. She's mortified with what's happening to her brothers because she hears them cry and she knows it's going to be her turn next. So when this is the situation, you have to do to offer the retrieval right away because, you know, you can't make self-depart relationship or witnessing that child is mortified, trembling in a dark closet. Um, so immediately that before you even started, you'd say, you know, so ask the little girl if she would like you to take her away from there. She doesn't have to stay there. You can take her away. Uh, and then we take her away, you know, so she's not there. So the retrieval is the first thing we do the minute we connect with the exile. The retrieval can come later after, you know, we've connected with the child. She's not in that kind of a precarious situation. She's able to tell us her story. We do the witnessing. Then, you know, we may ask, you know, does she want to now, would you like to leave this time and place? We did the redo. She already spoke with the teacher that hurt her and shamed her. Would she like to leave this time and place and go somewhere else? And then we would go. Um, so we can do it at any point. Uh, it can be in the middle of the witnessing. She's telling a story and the story becomes so intense and it's so difficult. And we say, you know, would you like to leave the place that she's at? Maybe the place that started okay, but now is already not okay. and she, you know, maybe she's just so upset, it would be good for her to just go into like a garden or a playground or safe other space. So the retrieval can come at any point that the uh, child needs it. The retrieval can come if it hasn't yet. It can come at the very, very end after we did the unburdening and at the integration. You know, we would ask the part, you know, well, now after the unburdening and the healing and the invitation, now at the integration, we we invite the part to say, well, what, where would you like to be now? What would you like to do now? And where would you like to be? And many times this is when they're fully ready to leave the time and place where things happen 
and come with you to your time and place, or they choose to stay in that time, but in a different place, stay on the beach or at the park that they loved or at grandma's or wherever they feel safe. So it can come at the very, very end, as this is the final place they're going to be left when you finish the session. And when you come to back to visit them on a daily basis, this is where they'll be, unless they ask to go somewhere else. They, they can always go somewhere else. It's always option, an option. Um, and sometimes there is no retrieval. They're not in the situation is not such that they want to leave or go anywhere. Um, they're just, you know, they need to have a corrective experience, but not by going somewhere else. So the retrieval may or may not be there. Um, sometimes we don't even get to offer it. The exile says, I want to leave. I don't want to stay here. I want to go. And they tell you, you know, I've had clients say, I want to go to grandma's house, you know, and or I want to go away. Or I want to go to the park. So, yeah, that retrieval can come at any point or not come at all. Thank you. The unburdening process is an extremely important part of the healing in IFS. And this is where exiles are able to release the extreme negative beliefs, emotions, and energies they've been carrying as a result of their wounding experiences. And sometimes we find that unburdening happens spontaneously as the self is connecting with the exile, witnessing their traumatic experience, engaging in the redo. And at other times, the unburdening takes place in a more formal unburdening ceremony after the exiles retrieved from where they were stuck in the past. And we can also have both. So can you comment on the phenomenon of spontaneous unburdening and whether it's still important to engage in the formal ritual if spontaneous unburdening has occurred? Yeah. So, you know, again, we just kind of take our cues from the system because obviously we're on the outside of it and we we don't know. Spontaneous unburdening happens when, um, you know, the all the steps before the unburdening were very, very meaningful and potent and impactful for the client or for the exile that we were with. So for them, the um, the experience of being, you know, this self, you know, relation with, relationship with self, with this benevolent, kind, compassionate, containing um, energy, for them to be able to um, have their story heard. You know, again, the witnessing so important that somebody really listened to the story fully didn't try to, you know, analyze it, didn't try to, yes, but it wasn't minimizing or disbelieving it, but totally, totally held space, you know, for that, you know, really witnessed um, and and offer that kind of presence that was so impactful, the redo or the retrieval. And at the end of that process, you know, when we offer the, the unburdening and we say, you know, Ask the child if she would like to release whatever she's still holding, you know, let go of it. I usually, by the way, just a hint, I don't use the word unburdening because these are children and they don't know what unburdening means. You know, we're talking to a child. But I would say, you know, let her know that if she's still holding in her, you know, pain or pain, painful beliefs, difficult energy, wounds that she's still feeling, you know, you know, heaviness, she can release it. She can let go of it. We can clean her up. You know, we can clean it up. She doesn't have to hold it. And when we offer that and the client checks and says, she she doesn't, she doesn't have it anymore. She totally, she feels great. She's she's happy. She's, you know, playing at the beach, you know, building sand castles. She she's fine. She she doesn't have any more. Because and that's the spontaneous, you know, unburdening and release that through the all the various steps that we've gone through, the child really cleansed herself up and she does not feel that she's carrying anything anything else um and that's beautiful 
And many times when there was some kind of a physical thing, I've noticed that when clients went through some kind of an embodiment, you know, that again, the embodiment can be, as I described, you know, just part showing us through the body, you know, what the experience was or having an embodiment of the redo, like, you know, you know, pounding on a pillow or screaming, you know, or something physical that they're able to do. Um, that actually seems to be correlated in my experience with them saying afterwards, I don't need it. I'm just, that's it. It's out of my system. I'm relieved of it. I'm, yeah, it feels clean. It feels light. It feels, it feels fine. So uh, we don't push. If they feel fine, there's nothing, you know, that's, that's okay. And also to know that these are not like one-time events. It could be that when we would connect with the exile again, the next week or the next day or the next month, then all of a sudden they'll say, you know, there's something that this part would like to let go of or release, something that just realized now that this part is still holding or it's still there, would like to release. And then we can do an unburdening. It's not like, you know, that was it. One time, you know, that, that train is out and we're done. No, we can always offer an unburdening if something shows up, comes to the surface, um, then we can do it. But yeah, spontaneous unburdening is when everything got cleaned up and cleaned out when um, through the other uh, steps and we arrived at the unburdening and they don't need it. If they don't need to unburden, we can still do the invitation. We can still say, you know, so she's feeling so much cleaner and lighter and freer. See if she would like to invite into herself qualities and energies that she would like to have from now on. So we can skip the unburdening, but we can still have the invitation. And that they may take that, you know, uh, or they would say, no, that also kind of she already feels, you know, stronger and happier and clearer and she's, you know, freer. So she's already got that. OK, so we don't have to do that. So let's just go to integration. Um, yeah, so that can happen. It's lovely when it happens. Most of us as IFS therapists and practitioners, we're aware that unburdening is a crucial part of the healing process and that unburdening the exiles can really allow the protectors feel like it's safe to step down from their roles. And as a result of us being aware of all this, sometimes, and you were kind of alluding to this earlier with the whole process, but sometimes unburdening can become something very agenda-driven. So parts of therapists, even parts of the client can be pushing toward the unburdening process. So can you comment on that idea of unburdening is sort of an agenda-driven process and what we might do Yeah, for noticing that? Yeah. So I think this also would fall under, I mean, here we are talking about exiles and it's relevant, but it would also fall probably under the category or the topic of, you know, self-like or self-mirroring. I don't like, I don't like to use the term self-like, like they're impostures, but self-mirroring parts, they're trying to mirror qualities of the self. And offer them in the process because they know that these are good qualities. These are good elements to offer. And so here we are. We've been, you know, IFS trained and we know that, you know, it's one of the main intentions that we're trying to hold is to reach exiles and offer healing. Because once an exile is healed, you know, it's like taking care of a, like a, an area of inflammation in the psyche because all the protectors around it can relax and transform and a lot of things change systemically when you offer healing. And just as some of us have parts that are, some of us therapists have parts that are afraid of going to exiles and avoid and try to refrain and find different ways not to go to exiles, 
Some of us would have parts that are absolutely gung-ho about we're going to exiles, we're going to exile. That's the cure, that's the that's the ticket, that's the way to help this person. We gotta go to the exiles one by one, you know, heal them, and that's the perfect way. So again, this would be an agenda-driven part. And an agenda-driven part may not notice all kinds of things that are important to notice, may not notice protectors that actually aren't trusting and aren't given permission. Uh, may not notice different uh, subtleties in the process because, again, parts, no matter how skilled and bright they are, and some of our parts are amazing, they do not hold that really uh, multidimensional big uh, perspective that um, self holds, that big P, one of the big P's, the perspective. Because self can really hold that the perspective that includes the entire client system, the client's external system too, you know, whatever we do in our session, the client has to then, you know, go home and meet their life and meet the other people and their systems in their lives and and our relationship with the client and our parts. So self-presence can hold this multidimensional perspective. And through, again, the presence of self, we can really notice when wait a minute, this might be going too fast, or this could be, you know, something that will have implications that, you know, afterwards would be maybe, you know, tentative or tenuous or something. So um, self-mirroring parts leading a process, just being so determined, so kind of outcome-oriented, we got to get to healing and exile, may uh, neglect or be, you know, blind to certain subtleties that are actually quite important. Um, and the process may be, you know, damaged in a way or compromised in that way. So it's it's part of being in self-presence is joining the client where the client is, not having an agenda for the client that we need to be somewhere else than we're here or faster or slower. It's really joining the client where they're at. We know we would like to get to to the exile. It's an intention, of course, you know, that we have, but it's not an agenda. And we will get to the exile in the route that is the most organic for the client, maybe through the body, maybe through the protector, maybe through multiple protectors. Uh, and it may take us time or it may happen fast, but, you know, just to allow the organic process to unfold and not have that sense that I have to get there. Because if you if we feel we have to get to to healing and exile, it's probably uh, a part, um, a very um, you know part that wants to be helpful, very committed, very devoted. I want to do good by my client, but it's um, it won't be feeling safe for many parts if we are uh, pushing towards that. And and it's a it's a risk because again, as IFS therapists, we you know we know that healing the exiles is really where big transformative change can take place it's very tempting to try and go there but just and and i'm not and i'm saying yeah definitely let's let's try and go there but let's make sure that the road to the exile is the most organic and safe and self-led path you know with our client
You know, at, at times we might notice that the client appears to be engaged in the healing process with an exile, but the healing does not seem to be proceeding in a maximally effective way. One of the reasons for this can be that another party is attempting to bring healing to the exile rather than allowing the client's self to connect to the exile. So what are some signs that might tell us that the self-mirroring part is in connection with the exile during the healing process rather than the client's self? Yeah. So this is, again, not the obvious parts that jump into the process. It's not like, you know, for instance, you know, we're starting to witness and hear the story of the uh, client of the of the exile and the client says, you know, this happened. She's telling me that this happened. Well, I can't believe this has happened. I don't think it was that bad. You know, it was not good, but it wasn't that bad. So I know that a part came in that's trivializing a little bit or minimizing a little bit the story. So these are or, you know, client says, whoa, I lost her. I can't see her. Well, I lost the whole thing. So I know there's a blanking, disconnecting part. So these are very obvious when we have parts like that. But we're, I think what you're asking, Anibal, just to make sure about things that aren't so obvious, you know, but somehow, again, may give us uh, a clue that, wait a minute, maybe the, the thing is conducted by, you know, self-mirroring parts rather than actual, you know, enough self-energy. So these little signs um, would be when, um, let's say that the exile is asking for something or needing something um, or you know we're offering the redo question you know the redo question is you know ask the child if you could be for her the adult that she needed back then but didn't have you know how would she want you to be what would she want you to do um and you know the the, the child says something and uh, and the client would say I, I don't know how to help her I don't know how to do that, or I can't. That's a sign that parts are here. Self does not say I can't or I don't know. As I said, self is is this the spacious container that has the right space for all of the parts in the system. Maybe for other systems as well, but we're just with this system. So self is the parent that can take care of of, of any child of this family. So when we hear a client says, I don't know how to help her, I don't know how to do that, or I can't do that, I know that these are parts that maybe have been up until now here, and finally they reach the place where they're like, whoa, that's it, that's above my pay grade, I don't know how to do that. And then I would just say, you know, so the part that's saying to us now, I don't know how to do that, I don't know how to help her, I can't, let them know that they don't need to, it's okay that they don't know. They can totally take a step back, rest, relax, you know, somewhere here on the couch. You are now with this child and you you will know what how to do this or what is necessary. So just invite them to rest. They don't need to be here. And you just be with the child and, and see what comes up. So um, that's actually usually very helpful. And that's usually right on because, again, I can't, I don't know when they're with the, with an exile, you know, comes from parts. Um, and I think that, you know, again, trying to come up, I give this example about trying to come up with ideas for redo and they don't work. These are parts also. Um, when the situation is such that, um, you know, 
we all of a sudden the client seemed like paralyzed or shocked or like again this i don't know how to do it or this is too much again these are parts um or when the exile is not connecting you know we start the process and we say you know see if you can get closer to the child you know does she notice you is she looking at you uh, is she okay with you coming closer and the and the client may say, no, she's not looking at me. Her back is to me. She knows I'm here, but she doesn't want to turn around. Um, and we'll say, okay, just give her her time, you know, let her know. It's not like she needs to be a good girl. No, she can be exactly the way she is, total authentic, total authentic self of her. And um, And if the child does not turn around, does not come close, does not want to trust, I would eventually say, you know, to the client, see if maybe there is a part that's present, that she notices in you and that makes her feel not so safe, that she's not seeing you. Or I would say, I would ask, you know, ask the child, I would ask, you know, what does the child see when she's looking at you? That's a really good question to know if you're not sure if the client is, there is enough self there, maybe parts, self-mirroring parts. When the child looks at you, what does she see? And then the client may say, you know, she 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 just sees, you know, she sees an adult or she sees me trying to help or she sees whatever the answer is, it can give us a clue. Um, does she see self? Does she see this benevolent, you know, uh, adult presence or she sees something else? And that's also a way to know that maybe some parts creeped into, crept into the process. <laughs> also, I want to say another telltale of self-mirroring parts would be um, effort. The difference, you know, between uh, these qualities of compassion, of patience, of care, of kindness, when they come from uh, curiosity, when they come from self, they're effortless. It's, it's a being, it's not a doing. And when they come from self-mirroring parts, there's always a sense of some effort, that there is an efforting to be compassionate or to be to ask the right question or to to remember the next step or to to know what to do next it's there's an effort rather than a flow uh, uh, an effortless flow i'm just with you and i'm so connected to you you the child and i'm so um present with you and attuned to you that i kind of know what's the next what to offer how to be with you and then there's an effort and a doubt and it's it's then again it could be self-mirroring parts doing it after the the healing and unburdening process has been completed, then we enter the integration phase, which is a multifaceted phase. But one of the things that's important in this phase is follow up with the unburdened part, often with other parts in the system that are impacted by the change. So can you talk about options for following up after a healing session, both in terms of things the client might want to do, things we might do in the sessions following unburdening? Yeah, this is always a kind of a bit of a tricky um, segment, seems like, for many of us, many of us clients and therapists alike, because there can be a tremendous amount of relief after, um, you know, uh, an unburdening and after completing the healing process. Clients say, I feel so much lighter, I feel so much, you know, freer, it just really, and, and the feeling may stay that way for a long time, and they would really see a lot of transformation in their lives, you know, slowly or gradually or dramatically. 
On the other hand, there also can be um, a lot of grief after an exile um, has been met and told their story, that which was hidden and silenced and, you know, shut down or shut away somewhere for many years, the story has come to life through the witnessing, witnessing through spending time with with the exile, um, the client may experience deep grief about what had happened to them and what that has taken from them as a child and later in life, you know, the impact of that um, on, on, on many aspects of their lives. So they can be in grief about that, you know, a sense of loss. And, um, and that doesn't mean that we did something wrong. You know, grief is a very natural um, response to, to the sad stories that our exiles tell us and to the pain that they have endured. And then we just want to be with our clients in their grief. We don't want to exile the grief. So if like you <laughs> helped one exile, now you're exiling something else. We want to be present with the grief. We want to totally you know, normalize the grief, be with them, because grief is not something people should deal with alone. And um, just allow the grief to be as part of the process and say, yeah, now that you really know this child, now that you've really fully heard the story of the child and and you fully are holding the enormity of what had happened, the impact of it. Yes, there is grief. Of course there is. There's grieving. There is mourning. There may be anger. All kinds of things may happen. But that doesn't mean we did anything wrong. It's actually absolutely normal and, and uh, well, organic for this process. Um but that may make it a little harder for the client to connect with the exile as we are prescribing. You know, we want to connect with the exile on a daily basis, at least in the beginning, because the process of de-exiling a part, bringing a part back from where they were locked up in that capsule deep inside our emotional basement, bringing them back into the fold, into the, the internal family that includes everyone, is not a one-time thing, you know. The system is still getting used to them being here after they've been, you know, hidden for so long and locked away. They are being getting used to being a member of, you know, of of the family. Their protectors are getting used to having them so, you know, in proximity and in the daylight, you know, and not locked up. So the process of de-exiling parts and making them full members of the tribe um, takes time. And that's why we say, you know, connect with them daily just so that you remember that they are here and they remember that you are here. And all the system remembers that they're no longer prisoners locked up, but they are really legitimate members of the system. And um, at that point, we can also start seeing the gifts that they're bringing us. Because, you know, who are these exiles? These are young parts that had all kinds of gifts of creativity, imagination, freedom, naivete, innocence, trust, joy, um, the ability to be carefree. And all those things were actually taken away from us when that child was taken away and, and locked up. So they are, you know, slowly starting to offer the gifts to the system, to us, you know, when we are staying connected with them. And they can infuse the system with so much joy and, and innocence and creativity and playfulness, things that, you know, happy, healthy children bring to any family system they belong to. So the same happens internally. Um, and, you know, that's why it's so important to continue with them. 
Um, I would also say that there are situations when we need to go back to them and they have still maybe more to tell, more story to tell, and maybe more unburdening to do. And that's okay. Sometimes not everything is available. And sometimes they are connected to maybe other exiles that of different ages that have experienced the same trauma, but different ages. And when we connect with them, you know, I've had that. So, you know, connected with the child that was abused, uh, sexually abused, and then just in connecting to check with her afterwards, after the healing process, you know, a week later or weeks later, um, she all of a sudden told us that there's a teenager with her that also been abused and that she now needs attention. So they may bring other relevant, related, connected exiles if we continue to connect with them and learn what about their world. And they may have a little bit more to unburden if they haven't yet or different things they want to take in. So it's a living, ongoing relationship with these exiles as we slowly integrate them into, into the system and into uh, with the other parts into our lives. Um, when a client comes back, you know, after a week or so or two, and I said, you know, were you able to connect with her? And the client says, oh, gosh, you know what? I've totally forgot. I knew there was something, but I totally forgot. Um, and then I know that there were parts that, you know, kind of disconnected the client, just these eraser parts that, you know, client left the office and totally erased this part, erased what happened. And, of course, also the erase the, requ the request to connect. So this is a good invitation for us to connect with the part that erased and check what was this part afraid would happen if it didn't erase this experience and continue the disconnect between the client and the exile, because that's what happened. The client didn't connect with the exile because completely forgot. And we may need to do some more work with the protectors around that exile because they're still not ready to allow full access, full connection outside of, you know, maybe the therapy hour. So there's more to learn about the environment of the exile when a client says, oh, I totally forgot. Or the client says, well, you know, I did it for a few days after the session and it was really great. But then I became really busy and there was never a right time. You know, the kids were up. You know, I was sick with a cold. I had a lot of work. Just didn't happen. Again, more parts that are actually trying to distance the, the person again from this exile. There's some something in the system is not fully ready to take in this exile, even though we did the healing steps, even though we, we even got to the exile by getting permission from everyone, still parts may still be kind of distancing, kind of not quite ready to let this one in. And we just continue to do this work with them around, um, around this exile. And that, by the way, could lead to more exiles that are connected. And these protectors may not want us to be fully connected with this exile, even though it's a healed exile. Because right next to it, they know there is more, and they're afraid of that. So conceptualizing the system is comprised of many different neighborhoods. Parts live in neighborhoods, and you sort of entered a neighborhood, but took care of something in the neighborhood. But there's all kinds of other things you know, around it that might still be needing uh, more care and more attention. Hey, Nat. Thank you so much for such an amazing conversation and for all the wisdom and love you shared today. It was a joy to be here with you and Lexi, and we really hope a long and stable peace comes soon to your region and to the heart of both Israeli and Palestinian people. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Thank you for these lovely words. And is it okay if I say one more thing maybe about this and exiles? I think that many times people ask about, uh, you know, we talk about exiles in childhood and early trauma, but we know, of course, we know all too well that we can have trauma later in life as well. And are these new exiles? Are these old exiles? What are these? But I also want to talk about, maybe just say a few words about universal exiles and collective exiles. You know, our exiles aren't just our private personal ones. We do have those, but there we have exiles that are carrying in them also collective trauma, uh, legacy trauma, and universal trauma. It's not a coincidence that the, the characteristics of self are universal. You know, people are come in so many different shapes and forms, and yet the description of the self is the same. These are the qualities that everyone's self has. It's a universal self, holds these universal qualities, which is the same with the exiles. Remember, I said there's a finite list, and no matter who you are and what your life story is, these things will cause you pain. Worthlessness, powerlessness, meaninglessness, loneliness, shame. All these things will cause you pain no matter who you are. So the pain is universal, just like the spirit of humanity as embodied by self is universal. And so we can share pain and we can hold the experience of pain, not just because it's in our exiles, in our biographical exiles, but also because we have pain of humanity. You know, uh, we share these universal pains. And our exiles, our pain connects us. It doesn't just separate us. And we are not just connected by self to each other. We are connected by the pain, the human pain that is universal and allows us to understand each other's pain because we have the same capacity for pain. And um, I am really um, holding this, this knowledge that the pain that we are feeling and is shared by many people, unfortunately, in this region and around the world is is pain that we can also heal through this joint uh, universal spirit of self. And I just am really holding on to that um, with great hope. So I appreciate spending this time with you guys today at this special time. Time that unfortunately causes tremendous amount of pain in so many different ways to so many people. Just holding deep hope for healing and for better days. Thank you again, Inat. Thank you. Thank you.